Welcome back to the Hormone Lifestyle Zone. I'm your host, Meg Ricci. This podcast series is about demystifying hormonal issues and struggles facing so many women today and bringing clarity and a greater understanding to the choices that any woman can make regarding her physical, emotional, and mental health. And that also includes choosing the right health practitioners to help her along that path to optimal health. And today's guest, best exemplifies this type of practitioner. And I will introduce her in just a few moments. So today's episode, Understanding Thyroid Disorders, The Butterfly and a Coal Mind. Your thyroid impacts every organ in your body. Your thyroid influences every hormone, your menstrual cycle, your fertility, your metabolism, your energy, your mood, sleep patterns such as insomnia, Every phase in a woman's life is deeply influenced by her thyroid. An estimated 20 million Americans, mostly women, have some form of thyroid disease. One in eight women will develop a thyroid disorder in her lifetime. Women are five to eight times more likely than men to have thyroid problems. And what I've seen in my clinical practice over the years, and it's such a cause of frustration at times, that I feel as if my hands are tied. Many physicians and endocrinologists don't know how to address thyroid issues properly with medication, lifestyle choices, and supplementation, and a variety of factors that are influencing a woman's thyroid. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce today's guest on the Hormone Lifestyle Zone. Her name is Dr. Brittany Henderson. She is an exceptional endocrinologist and the medical director of Charleston Thyroid Center in South Carolina. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So Brittany, I am over the moon to have you here today. And I think the best way to describe you is a functional medicine endocrinologist. You're a bit of a maverick in your holistic approach to treating thyroid and the whole person, which I find really exciting and greatly comforting. So what I would love for you to do is share your story with us that evolved into this incredible passion that you have for focusing on thyroid issues. Absolutely. So I um, started out wanting to go into medicine. I started in internal medicine and I was trying to decide what to do and um, started shadowing an endocrinologist in the community that did a lot of thyroid disease. I would actually go to his practice after being on call all night and um, actually saw what an impact he made for patients, especially for thyroid patients. So I ended up doing a fellowship at Duke University. Um, I did a lot of research in thyroid disease. I was in the basic science lab and did a lot of um, animal models and thyroid cancer research. But I decided that my biggest passion was for clinical research and for clinical practice. Um, Ended up running the thyroid program at Duke for several years and um, transferred over and ran the program at Wake Forest for the last three and a half years. And... um, during that time, I, I realized that we as healthcare practitioners are just not doing a good job with thyroid hormone replacement, diagnosis, lifestyle changes and recommendations. The research really is not there. And um, endocrinologists, even functional medicine practitioners, do not know how to treat these patients effectively. They don't know how to dose their medicine correctly. And um, 
I decided to actually move down to Charleston, South Carolina in January and start my own practice, the Charleston Thyroid Center, so that I could do that and I could bridge both conventional medicine with complementary functional medicine and join both approaches because it's so important. Both sides of the equation are important in proper care. Yay. You have been like the missing link for me or the missing uh, practitioner because I've been down in Charleston for five years and I work so much with women in the area of fertility and hormonal issues, uh, you know, dealing with perimenopause and menopause and I think we're going to go into that in a little bit. But I have found it incredibly frustrating because so many of these women, I ask for a full thyroid panel that includes TSH, free T3, free T4, reverse T3 antibodies and TPOs. And so many times I just get pushback on that. Mm -hmm. So I'm really glad to have you here in the community. And um, actually what I'd love to ask you, and you have this beautiful uh, print in your office of the thyroid. And um, I would love for you to describe the function of the thyroid, which is this beautiful butterfly-shaped gland that resides in our neck. Yep. So um, the thyroid gland, it is a small gland about the size of a walnut, um, but it controls almost everything. Um, so it sits right at the base of the neck, right above the sternum, um, and it looks like a butterfly gland. Um, so it has a right lobe and a left lobe and a middle portion. It secretes hormones. It secretes thyroid hormones. T4, which is inactive thyroid hormone, that's about 80% of what it secretes. And T3, which is active thyroid hormone, about 20% of what it secretes. And those hormones travel through the bloodstream and they affect function in all parts of the body, which is why thyroid is so important for optimal functioning. It affects brain function. So people with underactive thyroids describe brain fog or difficulty with thinking sometimes. Right. It affects heart function. It can affect heart rate and blood pressure, cholesterol. Um, it can affect um, fertility. And we'll talk about that mm -hmm. a little bit in uh, menstrual cycles. It can affect um, hot or cold, constipation or diarrhea. Basically, Everything, everything. everything. Wow. And that's because it's a hormone. It's one of the central hormones and it works within all of those um, cells. Would you say that we're seeing somewhat of an epidemic in thyroid issues today? Absolutely. Yes. Um, and the problem is not only is there an epidemic in thyroid issues, but it's also being under-recognized and under-treated. That I was just going to ask you. Yes. Yeah. So, um, I think, number one, that there is an epidemic in hypothyroid and hyperthyroidism. Why is that? So we know that there's a genetic component to these diseases. If you have a family history, like if your mom or your grandmother has thyroid disease, you're much more likely to right. get it. And um, we even talk about you know people with thyroid disease screening their kids when they turn 10 for thyroid hormone and for antibodies. Um, but it's more than that. It's more than just genetics. There has to be some type of a triggering event that right. triggers this to happen. And we think that a lot of the chemicals in the environment, we think that a lot of things like birth control pills and things that alter the gut microbiome right. can contribute to the development of these things. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, it's a, it's a huge problem and it's not being diagnosed effectively or correctly. I think the latest statistic says it takes about seven years yes. for somebody to be diagnosed with Hashimoto's disease. Why are doctors having a difficult time 
in um, diagnosing or why are they so, I guess the frustration that I have is I'll look at somebody's thyroid panel and I'll see something's askew, something's off. And their doctor will be like, well, your TSH is fine. Or your TPOs are in range, antibodies. I want you to talk about that. Um, and I've had clients that are trying to conceive, for example, mm -hmm. and their TSH is 2.8. And their doctor's like, well, that's fine. There's no issue here. Mm -hmm. Or they're newly pregnant and it suddenly shot up to 4.5. Could you talk about that? Most endocrinologists are confined by two things. Number one, the, quote, normal reference range, which is not actually normal, number one. So the, the normal reference range for TSH, for example, was obtained through a study called NHANES-3. And they looked at 1,600 women and looked and saw, you know, what is the median TSH? What's the normal TSH? Right. Um, well, and that's how they got the reference range of like 0.5 to 5. When they reanalyzed the data several years later, they found that about 15% of the people included in normal actually had underlying thyroid issues. And so it completely skewed the data. We're still using that old reference range. So um, the reference range, number one, is too wide. And most endocrinologists or primary doctors just go by what it says is normal. Mm -hmm. um, a normal TSH is not 0.5 to five. It's really 0.5 to about two, um, especially if somebody is healthy mm -hmm. and going into pregnancy. I mean, it, it's really important for that TSH to be perfect. Right. Um, the American college of obstetrics and gynecology says that your TSH level going into pregnancy should be about 2.5 or less, which I think is still a little bit yes. too generous. And then throughout pregnancy, less than three, which is a little too generous, but I think some of these societies are starting to realize that, number one, the reference range is too large. The second problem is, is that most endocrinologists and primary doctors are only looking at the TSH as mm -hmm. the only indicator for whether somebody has a thyroid problem. I see that in my practice right. all the time, and that is not helpful in most patients, especially in early disease. Mm -hmm. You have to look at things like their T4 level or their free T3 level. Reverse T3 is helpful in some right. cases. Their antibodies are really important, especially in yeah. young children, because what happens in young kids is they start, you know, with those antibodies coming up, and the antibodies in the blood basically indicate that their immune system is starting to attack the thyroid gland. So Hashimoto's disease is the most common thyroid condition for autoimmunity. And what it means is, is that the immune system, which is supposed to be attacking things like viral infections and bacterial mm -hmm. infections, starts attacking the thyroid as not part of that person. And right. over time, the thyroid stops working as a result. So it's silly to just check a TSH and wait until it becomes super abnormal to start treating a person. You start at the immune system, and when the antibodies start to rise, that's the beginning of it. You can actually impact it there. Um, so that is something that they t typically do not look at in their routine blood work. Mm -hmm. The reason for that is because they are um, held accountable to guidelines, okay? So they have lots of different societies. The um, ACE, which is the American Academy of Clinical Endocrinologists, the American Thyroid Association, they all recommend a TSH as your screening exam, and they don't recommend a full panel, and they don't recommend screening antibodies. Why do they do that? Because they're trying to be cost-effective, they're reviewing the available data. But the problem is the NIH and all of the 
organizations mm-hmm. that actually fund thyroid research do not fund autoimmune thyroid research, Hashimoto's, Graves' disease. They use all of the funding for things like cancer research and mm-hmm. infectious disease, rightfully so, but there's no money coming in for research. And so that is why we are so behind the times as far as diagnosis and treatment. So I spoke to Jacqueline, my client, she said, we can talk about her in the show. She said, go right ahead. Um, I have a, a client that I've been working with for the past couple of years, and she has had unexplained uh, fertility issues and had finally done IVF and recently uh, newly pregnant. I could actually feel it in her pulse two weeks ago, and then I felt, uh, felt it again a few days ago. But when she came in, something just told me she had an autoimmune issue going on and she had thyroid antibodies that were escalated. So I called your office and you were, your office was kind enough to get her in right away. Can you share what you found? Yes. So we saw her and if you were to go by her TSH alone, you would never know she had a thyroid issue. If you were to go by her TSH and her free T4 and her free T3 alone, you would never know she had a thyroid issue. So all of her levels looked okay, but she did have underlying autoimmune thyroid disease and she had positive antibodies. And so um, a lot of her symptoms that she was having, anxiety, difficulty sleeping, um, Palpitations. palpitations, heart racing, those kind of things could be absolutely attributable to these antibodies being positive. And that is a perfect example of being able to actually do a full thyroid assessment and find the underlying issue. Could that have been contributing to her fertility issue? Absolutely, absolutely. And um, you just would never know until the thyroid went really askew and you started seeing abnormalities in the TSH, which could take several years. And so, um, yes, I do think that there is a role for a full panel, including antibodies. And I think a role for thyroid ultrasound, because a lot of times what I'll see in some people, especially in kids, is that their antibodies are now back to normal. So I'm Mm -hmm. not seeing any abnormalities there. But when I look with an ultrasound, I will see changes from the immune system within the thyroid gland that happened maybe several months or several years ago and can affect symptoms. So, um, so I think, yes, there's a role for full workup and, um, a TSH screen is not enough. And you also had, uh, said to Jacqueline that the concern was that she would develop potentially developed, um, postpartum graves. Yes, absolutely. So one of the biggest triggers for autoimmune thyroid disease is pregnancy and in the postpartum period. This is um, one of the issues that we really need to start making an impact um, because a lot of these patients after pregnancy, you know, they lose weight. It's a time where you're cha- you have a lot of changes going on. You're losing weight. You're stressed out. You have an infant. You're not sleeping well huge triggers, stress number one, and Mm -hmm. the fact that after pregnancy, the immune system kind of rears back up. We see a lot of autoimmune disease there. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of these women after pregnancy are being diagnosed with things like anxiety and depression, being placed on antidepressant medicines, when in fact, it's actually a thyroid issue. And so for Jacqueline, we know that she has antibodies positive. They're stimulating the antibodies. So after pregnancy, when, um, so during, let me say, during pregnancy, 
pregnancy, the immune system kind of quiets down to be able to tolerate the fetus. So you have nine months of an immune system that's not surveilling as much as it should. After delivery, the immune system comes back with a vengeance, and that's when we see these issues. But we know she has those antibodies positive during pregnancy already. Afterwards, she's at a much higher risk for postpartum Graves' disease, which is hyperthyroidism and anxiety and other issues. So we will be on a lookout for that. But that would be great to be able to know that for these women going into pregnancy, especially those who have fertility issues. So for her, and I, I, I think this is important to share, um, and when she and I spoke and I said, now you understand why I want you on an anti-inflammatory diet and to keep your diet really clean. So um, she's going to be good about that. And also you put her on some selenium. Yes, and yes. could you talk about that? <clears throat> There's data behind selenium. Um, probably it's one of the vitamins with the most data. It has a lot of data with regard to Hashimoto's disease and being able to decrease TPO, which is one of the um, major antibodies in Hashimoto's, and thyroglobulin antibodies. But then in Graves' disease or hyperthyroidism, it can help with things like pain behind the eyes. And actually, she said she's been having pain behind her eyes for the last two years and didn't know why. And that is from these antibodies. Oh yeah. So, um, so selenium is a really good antioxidant, really, really mm-hmm. good antioxidant and really important in thyroid function as well. It helps support diiodinase function, which is an enzyme that converts T4 to T3. Um, so it, it will be helpful for her. But an anti-inflammatory diet, all of the lifestyle changes, yes. Meg, that you recommend to patients, so important for decreasing inflammation in the body and helping with autoimmunity. Yeah. I think it's really funny is a lot of times when I send clients to someone like you, then they, they're like, oh, I really do have to do this. You have to kind of be the one to confirm that. It's um, helpful sometimes to see the numbers. That yes. Is, well, I, yeah, I me, think that I'm was a, a come to Jesus. Person. Yes. And I think that was a, uh, a real come to Jesus moment for her. And I'm so glad that she was able to see you. And, you know, somebody just recently um, I, I spoke to is suffering from terrible depression and anxiety. And she just had a child and she has postpartum depression. I know it's her thyroid. She was describing classic symptoms. Mm-hmm. So anyway, she's, she will uh, be reaching out to you. And, for and, that, that, and I'd love for you to touch on postpartum depression. Yeah, absolutely. So for those patients, um, number one, if you had a baby and you have a family history of thyroid problems, be on high alert for thyroid issues after pregnancy, number one. And it's, again, not just a TSH check, although after pregnancy, that's probably when you're going to see the TSH abnormal compared Mm -hmm. to other parts of life. Um, Number two, if your weight dramatically decreases or dramatically increases after pregnancy, that is a telltale sign that there may be something wrong with the thyroid gland. And number three, if you have worsening anxiety and depression that really, you know, of course there's postpartum depression and that isn't always thyroid related, but Mm -hmm. if it's something new that you've never dealt with before, really consider that to be possibly a thyroid issue. And we are missing so many patients with that. And, um, and you can have, you know, thyroid issues in the postpartum period that resolve. So Mm -hmm. you can become hyperthyroid, hypothyroid, and then you can go back to normal thyroid function and you would never have known unless you actually asked your primary doctor or your endocrinologist to check you. So I, I, maybe we can tap, um, tap into this right now. What percentage of women that you see with anxiety do you feel 
um, there is a thyroid connection. Well, I mean, I see that all the time. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's probably one of the biggest symptoms that I see, especially for some reason in young people. So, um, teenagers and, um, and kids even with anxiety, check their thyroid, please. I mean, they usually have positive antibodies and for those kids, their TSH is not going to tell you anything. So, um, kids for sure have that. And then I would say young adults, twenties, thirties, forties, once people get up into their fifties and sixties, it's not as big of a deal. Mm -hmm. Um, for, for that. But I think, um, for, for older adults, it's more so how their thyroid medicine is dosed. If they're on thyroid medicine, that in and of itself can cause anxiety. Okay. And that's what I wanted to talk to you about dosing. And actually when is the best time of day to have your blood test drawn for a thyroid test? Because the numbers fluctuate and I, I would love some clarity on that. So this is really important. Um, most physicians will not tell you this because they don't even know this, but you have to always compare your thyroid levels at the same time of day. Really important. If you're not on thyroid medicine, your TSH and your T3 will be highest in the morning time and lowest in the afternoon. If you're on thyroid medicine, you should always get your labs, if possible, about two hours after taking your dose. I like to see that because then I can see, okay, what's happening when you're actually absorbing the medicine, what's going on at the peak there. Sometimes I'll even check it in the afternoon if you take medicine in the morning to see what happens at the nadir when the the thyroid is kind of waning as the day goes on. But timing is everything when you're on a thyroid medicine. You can't do labs, you know, at 8 a.m. today, this day or 5 p.m. this day and take medicine one day and not take medicine the other day. It doesn't make any sense and you can't go by that as far as dosing and and dosing recommendations. I had a a client a few years back and I I looked at her TSH and she was trying to have a second child and it was her TSH was like a 3.2. And then her I, I said, I'd really like to get your thyroid checked again. And then it fluctuated a little, and it went a little lower, but it was still a little high. And her doctor was like, well, the thyroid's going to fluctuate during the course of the day. I think it went down, it went down to 2.4. So how do you – so, again, whether somebody is on medication or not, shouldn't they just – they should take it at a certain time of the day. But their doc may not even know the difference in the level. That's the problem. Most physicians don't know the difference. They don't look at the time. Whenever you're looking at thyroid levels, you should always look at the time of day that it was drawn. I always do that because Mm -hmm. I want to know, okay, where am I in the day? And also, if you're on medicine, when are you taking it? Did you take it last night? Did you take it this morning? Did you not take it? It completely affects what I'm looking at. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, yes, ideally, checking it in the morning time would be best. Two hours after you take your medicine is what I like to do so that Mm -hmm. I can see what's going on after you absorb the medicine. So talking about meds and dosage, I, it was funny, um, one of my clients had just started seeing you and you gave her, I loved it, three different recommendations on how to take her meds. And two of them were, um, the dosing was in the morning and then in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. And then the third one was a time release. So could you talk about dosage and or dosing during the day and why are 
do you, um, it's another question I'm going to throw in there, but if somebody is being given medicine, thyroid meds in the morning, you know, how is that different from dosing it throughout the day? I mean, twice a day. Yeah. So, um, it's a really good question. And what I would say is number one, whenever I'm working with a patient, this is teamwork. I mean, they know their body, they know Mm -hmm. what's going on between visits. I'm just helping and I'm looking at their levels the day that I see them. So I need them to be on board as far as what dosing regimen. That's why I always talk about the different options because I want them to help me choose. And, and if that doesn't work, we go to option B or we go to option C. Um, and I want them to be a player and a partner in this in this decision. And then I would say, you know, there are multiple different forms of thyroid medication. Everybody is different. It is not a one-size-fits-all approach. Really, really time-intensive to kind of try to figure out what some people do well on versus other people. And everybody's different. Why is that? Well, the reason is, is because everybody is made up genetically differently. So they metabolize thyroid hormone differently. They, um, you know, their brain sees thyroid hormone differently. Their muscles and their joints see thyroid hormone differently. That's all genetic. Number two, everybody has a different gut microbiome and a different absorption pattern. So, you know, your microbiome is different than my microbiome. I absorb medicine completely different than you do. And so that really impacts it as well. Um, A lot of people ask me too, like, is there a difference between generic um, medicine versus name brand? And I always say yes, because it really depends how you absorb the medicine. I mean, they're all the same dosage of hormone, but they have all different fillers in all mm-hmm. of the medications. That impacts how people um, actually absorb the medicine and how it rises in the bloodstream and all of that. Everything affects how they feel. So um, as far as dosing goes, um, there are multiple different forms, T4-only forms like Synthroid or Levothyroxine or Tyrosin or Levoxyl. Those are some of the name brands. That's a once-a-day instant release kind of medicine. It's dosed once a day. And it just gives you like a flat line of, med- of hormone. Um, Armor, Nature Throid, those kind of things are natural desiccated thyroid. So they have both the T4 and T3. And that's, you know, derived from a pig. Um, so that one comes out instant release too. It's, it's pretty quickly acting. And then there's a, an ability to actually compound medicine and do it sustained release so that it lasts 24 hours and you can dose it just once in the morning. And whenever we're talking about the different forms of thyroid medicine, we're taking into account, you know, does this person need just T4? Does this person need T4 and T3, the active form? Is their lifestyle really busy? Can they do medicine two or three times a day versus once a day? Um, All of these things impact our decision of what we put people on and what we try first. Um, Do you feel that most people need a combination of T3, T4? That's a good question. So I would say in the beginning, if you're starting with a thyroid illness, your thyroid went from maybe 100% now down to 75% function. In that situation, not everybody needs T3 because you still have some thyroid function left and the thyroid potentially could be secreting T4 and T3 in addition to what you're giving. But 
if you don't have a thyroid or if you have something called atrophic thyroiditis, which means that you've had really long standing thyroid issue, a lot of times I will look with the ultrasound because I do that in my mm. practice and I will see that there's no thyroid left. Um, basically, the immune system's completely destroyed the gland. And in that case, yes, there is no thyroid gland. So, um, if you remember, I said 80% of a normal thyroid is T4 and mm-hmm. 20% of what the thyroid um, produces is T3 to actually give people back the correct ratio is important. And so mm-hmm. I do think in that situation that most people do need some T3. This is such great information. Can you briefly define the difference between subclinical thyroid and hypothyroid? Yeah, this is such a um, silly thing. So, okay. I talk about this in my book. This is a great book. It's like the Bible of thyroid. What you must know about Hashimoto's disease, restoring thyroid health through traditional and complementary medicine. This book encompasses everything on the thyroid. It's fabulous. It's, I, anyone that's curious about thyroid, including clinicians, great book. So, yeah, so everything that I'm talking about, well, most of what I'm talking about is in this plus extra things. We talk about lifestyle and diet and everything. Mm-hmm. You can get it on Amazon. Um, and and so if there are things that we don't address that listeners mm-hmm. are interested in, they can get that. So, yeah, so subclinical hypothyroidism is basically defined as a elevated TSH. And by elevated, I mean a TSH over four, like four to ten, which um, if you know about normal TSH, like I said, 0.5 to 2 is normal. So we're talking 4 to 10 times normal. And then a, quote, normal T4 and, quote, normal T3, meaning that they're in the normal range. And I think that those ranges also are too um, wide as well. But um, that is what subclinical hypothyroidism is. Subclinical hyperthyroidism means that the TSH level is below the normal range, um, but the T4, T3 are normal. And then overt hypo or hyperthyroidism means everything's out of range. So basically it's all a spectrum. Subclinical just means, you know, start of thyroid issues. It's so silly. The, the actual name subclinical means that somebody who has this issue with a high TSH and normal T4, T3 should not have any symptoms. It should be subclinical, below clinical detection. But um, if you actually ask anybody who has this, they're going to have symptoms. They're going to be tired. They're going to be having difficulty with weight loss. They're going to have constipation and hair loss and fatigue and temperature problems. So um, I really, as a practitioner who does this all the time, I don't really believe in subclinical thyroid issues. I would love to talk about subclinical hypothyroid Hashimoto's kind of like rearing its head during perimenopause or when women just start hitting their early 40s. And um, I'd also love for you to talk about how insomnia plays a role also during this time. I see women, more and more women with insomnia. I just don't think it's based on, you know, a decline in estrogen and progesterone. I really think it's uh, thyroid issues. And um, I would love for you to kind of 
tackle that? So we just talked about subclinical hypothyroidism. Let's think of perimenopause as subclinical menopause. So it's menopause, but you know, it's just not quite menopause. Um, So in this period, the female hormones and signaling from the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland to the ovary is not quite perfect. It should be perfect. You know, it should work like clockwork. Your period should come every 28 days to 32 days and your LHFSH should come up. Those are two hormones from the pituitary. Mm -hmm. Your estrogen should come down. Your progesterone should go up. You should have a menstrual cycle. So in this perimenopause or subclinical menopause period, all of those hormones start misfunctioning or, you know, they don't, they don't, do not work like clockwork. The way that that impacts thyroid hormone or vice versa is that the estrogen levels start to kind of decline or they're not as good as they used to be. Progesterone is not as good as it used to be. And that affects the free levels of thyroid hormone in the woman's body. All of that together can cause a woman usually to feel more on the hypothyroid side, Mm -hmm. more fatigued. But um, some women, actually probably about 20% of the time, they can manifest as more hyperthyroid symptoms. Insomnia during this time is very, very common. And um, we tend to think of that as being more... Um, progesterone mediated mm-hmm. with the progesterone um, levels decreasing, but that also influences the free levels of thyroid hormone. And we see insomnia all the time. And I always tell my patients, you know, thyroid hormone is just one part of the puzzle. It's one hormone in your entire body. When it's off, it influences all of your other hormones, your estrogen, your progesterone, your LH, your FSH. When you're LH, FSH, progesterone, and estrogen are off, conversely, they affect your thyroid hormone. Everything interplays. So during this period, we have some troubles. I mean, we actually have to really watch people's hormones and um, and their thyroid levels and watch their symptoms because it's a rough period. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Um, you know, I think we're so interested in checking uh, cholesterol and and doing. Um lipid panels every few years and, and checking vitamin D occasionally. But it, it seems like that we really should be looking at a woman's thyroid every year when she goes for her yearly visit to a gynecologist and do a full panel. I would love that. I would love that. I think that really honestly would positively impact um, women and it would positively impact their um, symptoms through menopause, through perimenopause, postmenopausal, um, it affects everybody's free thyroid hormones. Even if you don't have a thyroid condition, it's still going to affect your free hormones for thyroid hormones. So I agree with that. And I think, um, that would be a great addition to the recommendations. Can you talk about the role, um, how vitamin D and thyroid play off one another or how D influences thyroid? Yeah, absolutely. So vitamin D is really a very important anti-inflammatory vitamin. It's awesome. You should be on it if you're, if you're not, um, or you should be getting it, um, through your food as well. And then I also say, you know, the sun, but, um, after the age of 50, your skin doesn't change, um, you know, the vitamin D like it should, um, after or below the age of 50, but vitamin D is really important, not only for bone health and muscle health, but also for your immune system health. Um, it's one of the most important 
vitamins for immune health. And so if you have underlying autoimmune thyroid disease, getting your vitamin D up into a really good range, I usually try to target about 50 to 80, honestly. Um, Most people do not have a vitamin D of 50 to 80 unless you're on supplements. So mine is horrible, actually. I, I, yeah. But um, really, really important. There's good data actually to show that optimizing vitamin D helps reduce autoimmunity mm-hmm. and not only for thyroid disease, but there's data in type one diabetes, for right. example, and other autoimmune diseases. And did you know that some of the best D3 research comes from MUSA? I did not know that. Dr. Carol, Carol Wagner. I mentioned that in my previous podcast on fertility. And she's done extensive research with D and women during, um, during pregnancy. And one of the reasons for that is because vitamin D actually works on the nuclear receptor. So inside the nucleus, so does thyroid hormone. So all of the ones that actually work there are really important because they help to optimize, you know, um, DNA and, and, um, gene function and, um, transcription basically like they, they work really, really importantly within the cell. So vitamin D optimization, really important. So another question, what do you think about iodine and dosing with iodine? And I mean, I've heard so many things and, you know, the thyroid, the breast and the ovaries are the biggest receptor sites for iodine. So would love to hear. So this is a big topic, but um, what I would say is number one, we need iodine. Okay. So your thyroid uses iodine to make thyroid hormone. Back in the 1800s and the 1900s, when we didn't have iodine added to salt, when people didn't have access to fresh seafood, you know, patients developed hypothyroidism because they didn't have enough iodine to make thyroid hormone. They also had big goiters, which is an enlargement of the thyroid gland because the thyroid gets bigger in order to try to keep up with the thyroid, the body's demand for thyroid hormone when it doesn't have enough iodine. So back in the 1900s, they added iodine to salt. So we had iodinated table salt. You know, now we're using more designer salts like Himalayan salt and sea salt and all of these things, which is good, but it doesn't have the added iodine. Um, There are multiple other sources of iodine, seafood, for example, egg yolks, seaweed. um, Those things give us, you know, a lot of of the iodine that we need. So we do need some. And um, the recommendations are 150 micrograms for adults, 220 micrograms if you're pregnant. Right. In autoimmune thyroid disease, it's a little trickier. So if you um, have autoimmune thyroid disease, you need to know if you have thyroglobulin antibodies positive. So there are multiple different antibodies that you can have positive in Hashimoto's disease or in Graves' disease. TG antibodies or thyroglobulin antibodies are just one of those. And there is data to show that if you have too much iodine in that respect, it can actually make your autoimmunity worse. If you have too much iodine, it can actually um, make your hypothyroidism worse if you take too much. So really probably that would be a good question to discuss with your doctor as to how much iodine and if you need and you know more. There's actually some data now that shows that patients with Graves' disease, hyperthyroidism, that iodine can sometimes help get them into remission. Oh, that's interesting. 
but it can also worsen things yes. too. So you really have to work with your doctor on, on, on iodine. It can actually cause or worsen something called a thyroid storm and Graves mm-hmm. disease. You need the proper other nutrients or, or medicines on board if you're going to use iodine and you need to be frequently monitored. But it's a good question and it depends is the, the answer. So let's talk about lifestyle and diet and how that and environmental factors and how all of this is influencing our thyroid today and kind of setting us, sending us down that path of a lot of autoimmune uh, issues oh my around gosh. thyroid yeah, and absolutely. in general. In general. And that's what, you know, I myself, um, what I look at is obviously cleaning up the gut, the diet, doing food sensitivity testing. Um, I think it's kind of funny because a lot of times when I refer clients out, whether it be to someone like you here out of state, sometimes they're not able to see that practitioner for six weeks, two months because there's such a waiting list. But I think it's in a way, it's a great time for me to clean everything up. So by the time they see that uh, clinician, um, they'll be in a better place. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, when we're talking about that, let's start first with autoimmunity. Why in the world would our immune Mm -hmm. system start attacking our thyroid gland is not part of us. That just seems crazy. Um, But there's a reason. So if you look at some of the data, you'll see that um, back, you know, in the 1800s, the incidence of things like influenza and the bubonic plague and hepatitis and all of these other infectious diseases, polio, tuberculosis, they were very, very high. And so the immune system was seeing those viruses and those infections and fighting those off. And the immune system was what we call primed. It it knew who the enemy was. Mm -hmm. Now there's something called the hygiene theory where now that we have soap and we wash our hands and we all do that, you know, antibacterial stuff, it's basically killing off are any kind of bacterial exposure, any kind of viral exposure, so that our immune system is kind of, you know, it's prenatal. It's It hasn't been exposed to anything to know what to attack. Um, and so for us, our immune system is seeing things like processed foods and chemicals in our foods, chemicals in our cleaning supplies, um, or in our cook- cookware, um, and so, um, that, in our mattresses in and our carpet. mattresses and it's seeing those things as foreign, which rightfully so it should, because they are, um, and those things are in our food and they are, you know, we're breathing them in and we get exposed in our water supply. Our water supply is horrible. I think we mentioned that before, but, um, those things are what's triggering the immune system. And then there's something called molecular mimicry where these food antigens and chemicals can look like the body's own cells. Um, So if you look at things like PBDEs, PBDEs are flame retardants that are in our mattresses and in our electronic equipment. They're everywhere. They're in kids' pajamas. That's how extensively they are throughout our um, society. They look like thyroid hormone to the body. And oh my God, like xenoestrogens. Totally like oh, xenoestrogens. Oh, wow. So these are the xenothyroid hormones. And they're everywhere. Oh, wow. So um, so they, that in and of itself wow. is priming your immune system to say, hey, guys, like this is not normal. What the heck? And is causing a lot of this autoimmune stuff. Nobody's talking about this. This is really significant. So if you take the, a cocktail of xenoestrogens and combine that with these xenothyroid 
uh, we're completely messing up our endocrine systems. Yes. Yes. And it's contributing to autoimmunity. There are multiple other chemicals in the environment. You know, in the book, I talk about, um, all of these other halides, bromides and fluorides and chlorides. Talk about that. Yes. So, um, but PBDs are brominated chemicals. And so bromides are in the same, um, family on the periodic table as your iodine or, you know, and so it interferes with uptake of iodine in the thyroid and that's why it's completely messing up that that hormone system and it's in baked goods yes it is um actually in mountain dew has um bromides in it brominated vegetable oil it's it's actual um rocket fuel oh my god yeah it helps it to actually stay all yellow but um, yeah, it's in that. It's in our strawberries. If you could see me cringing right now <laughs> and my eyes are just spinning, that's what I'm doing in this moment of silence. But we're uh. exposed to that. And then fluorides, I mean, fluorinated toothpaste and fluorides in our water. Um, we have a lot of uh, chloride exposure as well. Clorox bleach is everywhere. It's so in why, every household in America. Why is fluoride in water? They did it in the concentration camps to actually sedate uh, the people in the camps I think at high doses. Yeah. So it's a dose-dependent thing, right? So at lower doses, it might help you with your tooth enamel. But at the doses that we're exposed to it, it is causing autoimmune thyroid disease. And there are studies to show that. But that's like telling people to drink sunscreen to prevent cancer, (laughs) right? I mean... Right, you're yeah. trading. You're trading your beautiful set of teeth for a life of There's no reason. Yeah. So we're really so. bombarded, and and that is a big problem. So you know, I always recommend to people at home um, get a reverse osmosis system in your house. Mm-hmm. Or there's a really lovely, do you know Berkey, the Berkey water system? I do. How do you feel about that? I think it's excellent. And And it tastes really good. It tastes good and it's more affordable than some of the other systems too. So the Berkey system is something that you can set up and put on your counter in the kitchen. It's really easy. I think it's it's got a charcoal filter and a couple of other filters and you just fill it with water and it filters out the impurities and it tastes great. So that, that's a really, really good recommendation. What do you feel about fluoride toothpaste? Um, well, I think you need a little for your, for your teeth, but so I don't tell everybody like, go stop your fluoride toothpaste, but don't go and get prescription fluoride toothpaste for the love of God. I mean that in and of itself, especially if you have thyroglobulin antibodies, it's going to make things worse with regard to your thyroid disease. Okay. So that makes me a little nervous still. So would you recommend to someone who has thyroid issues use fluoride toothpaste once a day? And, and then that would so and, that, and, and then they can use another fluoride free. You could use another fluoride free toothpaste. And if and if your thyroglobulin antibodies are really high and you're really trying to do everything to impact mm-hmm. those, you could do fluoride free toothpaste. That's okay. fine. Yeah. Okay. Um Thyroid hormone conversion takes place in the gut and the liver? It takes place in all of your organs. So primarily it takes place in the liver, in the muscle tissue, and in the pituitary or in the brain. But most organs also do that, um, T4 to T3 conversion. I see a lot of, and I had it, was they say um, endocrine-induced myalgia. 
I know I'm bouncing a bit, but mm-hmm. I just feel like I, I want to roll with what's coming up. And I and I see, and I myself had that, mm-hmm. as you know, and mm-hmm. just recently made a change in my, my uh, thyroid meds working with Brittany, and I've had terrible shoulder joint pain for over five years. And in a very short period of time, it's like 80% gone. Thyroid hormone is so important for muscle health. It is so important. And it's interesting because some patients have uh, a lot of myalgias and a lot of joint pain when their thyroid hormone is off and other patients don't at all. And I think number one, it's genetic. So Mm -hmm. you have the genes that if your thyroid hormone is even a teeny little bit off, you're going to have pain. Um, but that needs to be optimized. And the things that need to be optimized for joint pain and muscle pain are not even just TSH or T4. It's primarily T3. So um, T3 needs to be optimized to help with joint pain and with muscle pain. And I also think that a lot of those things are um, mediated because of how the thyroid hormone is absorbed into the bloodstream. If, it's a, if, it, if there are wide fluctuations in thyroid hormone throughout the day, it makes those joint pain's worse. And I see that all the time in, in thyroid patients. It can be fixed. It is, you know, diet mediated in some patients, but a lot of times it's just tweaks in the thyroid medicine that take care of it. Please, let's talk about microbiome thyroid and, and that thin one cell wall, that barrier to the outside world within the gut and what's happening to it and uh, how it's becoming leaky. So please. Yeah, absolutely. So So number one, your gut barrier, um, like she said, is just one cell thick. And behind that wall are a bunch of immune cells. And they're just waiting to make sure that there is no breach in the wall. They're making sure that there's no invaders or chemicals or other foreign things that the immune system has to attack and, and defend you against. And honestly, the gut is the biggest place it's the the most uh, harbors the most number of immune cells in the entire body so um and that's rightfully so that's first where you're exposed to a lot of these um Mm -hmm. antigens so what happens with time if you have alterations in your gut microbiome so how number one how do you get alterations in your gut microbiome um Number one, if you weren't breastfed as an infant, you're at a higher risk for alterations. Um, if, number two, if you were exposed to a lot of um, antimicrobials or antibiotic yeah. treatments throughout your life, that messes you up completely. Right. So um, as a side note, for patients who are hypothyroid, after they've been treated with antibiotics, their gut microbiome is so different that a lot of times I have to alter their thyroid dosing because they're absorbing it better or they're not oh, absorbing wow. it as well. That's interesting. It's such a difference. Wow. So, um, so that is one reason why people get altered. Another reason is because of use of chronic NSAIDs, um, ibuprofen yes. and um, Advil and Aleve, all of the things you can just easily get over the counter mess you up. Mm-hmm. Um, PPI medicines, omeprazole, Nexium um, for acid indigestion mess you up, birth control pills. So everybody's on one of these. <laughs> and so that's why we're having such an issue because basically those drugs alter the normal healthy flora, the, mm-hmm. um, b- basically the bacteria that are supposed to be in your gut right. um, and allow for over- overgrowth of these, quote, bad guy bacteria, which, um, 
you're exposed to in your food and also in your mouth and in, you know, the upper um, airway, all of those bacteria actually enter the lower gut and overgrow and cause constipation and diarrhea and altered bowel function and pain. And over time, um, the little tight junctions, which are Um, basically little channels between Mm -hmm. the cells that line the intestine start to open. Why do they do that? They do that on purpose. So that's called leaky gut, but really, and I call this in my book, fighting gut, your body is doing that not because it's like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm being exposed to all of these things. It's doing it on purpose so that it can allow the immune system to come out and see what's going on in the gut lumen and attack the the foreign or bad guy invaders and and try to protect you from all of this. So um, that is happening a lot in our society yeah. just because of everything that we're exposed to in our food supply. And maybe you want to comment on how often you see this in your practice. 90% of the people that walk in my office have some for, form of dysbiosis or uh, leaky gut or um, overgrowth of yeast, bacteria, um, yeah, their microbiome has been compromised because there, there's been a history of antibiotics. Um, antibiotics are really, that seems to be a big culprit mm-hmm. for a lot of people. But also, too, you know, I mean, your immune system, 80% of your immune system is the gut. And I always start with the gut. Mm-hmm. And I see so much... Uh, um, a good portion of women that come in actually have constipation issues. So I want to make sure, you know, I usually address that and I can usually tell the individuals that it's also thyroid related, but the microbiome is everything. I always have to address that. In Chinese medicine, it is the the foundation of your health. Mm -hmm. And it is absolutely. I mean, I think if you, if, I mean, anybody can know if their gut microbiome's off. Oh, yeah. Just look at your bowel function. If you're oh, not yeah. going regularly every day, if there's something wrong with your stool, there's something wrong with your gut microbiome. So how do you correct that? Well, first of all, why does that impact thyroid um, dysfunction? So like I said, the immune cells come out, they're fighting off these bad guy bacteria, and um, the immune system sees these chemicals and these mm-hmm. food additives and these bromides in your electronic flame retardant kind of things. And it looks like thyroid hormone to the body. Molecular mimicry is part mm-hmm. of that. Also, um, just revving up the immune system all the time causes a state of inflammation in the right. body, which then leads to alterations in your immune response and confuses the immune system. Um, mm-hmm. And that can also lead to different autoimmune issues, thyroid disease, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, Lupus. all of these things. So cleaning up the gut is really, really important. That's the foundation. Yeah. And I, and I, you know, I work with women and anti inflammatory food program and also do detox programs. I, I think you and I could go on forever and I would love to have you back and hopefully soon. So how can people reach you and set up an appointment? They can reach me on my website, um, www.charlestonthyroidcenter.com. I'm also on social media. My handle is Dr. Henderson, um, MD, Dr. Henderson, MD. And um, I'm on Facebook and Twitter, and I post about um, thyroid issues every single day. Or they can call my office, 843-388-7545. 
Thank you so much for being here today. That was a lot of really wonderful, wonderful information. My producer's looking at was looking at me at times, and her mouth was just dropping with, oh my God, I didn't know that. So I want to thank everyone so much for listening. Please share this podcast with all the women in your life. And if you have any questions, I'd love to hear from you. And if you would like to work with me, you can contact me, um, shoot me an email at megrichichi.com. I'd love, again, to hear from you. You can subscribe, rate, review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get a podcast. And until we meet next time, time. Take good care. Be mighty awesome because who you wish to become resides in the potential of who you presently are.